For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and I see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Sarah. Um, hi, everyone. Good morning. My name is Matt, uh, as she was said, and I'm one of the community leaders here and a part of the teaching team. Um, yeah, thanks. And I, uh, before we get started, I was, um, like, during worship, I just, which was extremely powerful, and I'm kind of maybe stalling a little bit to gather myself because I'm still feeling that. But um, I just felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to say to us before we even get started is that like there's hope in Jesus. And I know it sounds like simple, but, you know, we're, we're going to go into this text and it's, you know, um, the words of Paul are, we're going to go deep. It's encouraging, but I think that there's a simplicity and knowing that we have hope in Jesus. I was reminded of, um, there's this guy, I still listen to him now, but I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Donnie McClurkin. Uh He was a, he's a gospel singer. What's that? Amen. Amen. Thank you. So Donnie McClurkin, he had this, uh, I just remember as a, as a kid, listening to um, one of his like tracks on like a live album. And if you ever listen to like a gospel singer's live album, it's just continuous, which is awesome. But there was a specific track, and it, it said Blood Medley. Like, that was the name of it. And it was, it was just this, these continuous songs about uh, the cross. And I remember Donnie McClurkin, if you can go and you can listen to it on, like, Spotify or whatever, but he goes, he's, like, yelling at us. Like, no, I'm just kidding. He's not yelling, but he's like, um, you can never be so advanced that you forget about the cross. And I remember as, like, a kid, sorry, I'm getting, I don't know what's going on, but... I just remember as a kid not really understanding that, but now as an adult, I realize the complexities that come with life. And I realize that, you know, obviously we're going to, come, we're going to go in the way that we're going through this text is, you know, verse by verse. But there is this simplicity, almost like a necessity to life to understand that these very simple principles are so complex. And 
I just want us, really quickly before we start, I just want us all to close, could you please close your eyes? I'm just going to pray over you. And for, for those of you who are, who are experiencing this kind of, what we've been talking about, like a deconstruction or um, an intellectual conundrum of sorts, when it comes to faith, just know that there's hope in Jesus. So Father, we just invite you into this place, God. As we continue our time of worship through the teaching of your word, Father, let, let your spirit guide us. Father, that we will never lose hope in you because you are constant, you are near. Father, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins and we reflect on that daily. Individually, as a community, Father, I pray that your spirit will move right now, that hope will reign in this Sunday gathering here in San Diego at Adams Elementary, Father, we invite your presence into this place. And I just pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So like Shua mentioned in, um, during worship, there's this uh, personality test called the Enneagram. You guys, how many of you have ever heard of the Enneagram? Cool. Uh, so for those of you that are unfamiliar, it's basically this numbered system from one to nine, and you kind of get like, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, in a sense. We know what personality tests are. For me personally, I am a seven on the Enneagram. So a seven is uh, commonly referred to as an enthusiast. So we have a vigor for life, and we see life as this party, and we want to be the center of it. So like, even if we're partying in a house, and the house is burning, we'd be like, it's all good, like, so there's kind of the negative side where we don't really see, you know, the negative things in life, um, but there's, there's other traits associated with this personality type. Uh, another one is that we desire to do everything all the time, all at once, right? If we have any sevens in here, you know what I'm talking about, but let me give you, uh, let me give you an example. So regarding my, my personal fitness goals, right? So at the beginning of this year, I was going to be an elite triathlete, okay? <laughs> so what did I do in order to become an elite triathlete? Again, notice the dramatic, like not just like, oh, I think a, a triathlon would be cool. It's like, no, I want to be the best, right? So what I did is I bought a book, right, to set up my training goals. I signed up for the YMCA because they have a pool uh, and researched road bikes. Uh, and I was really ready. All, the only thing I had to do was buy a road bike. But then I, I, I was, as I was doing my research, I'm like, I go into my, we have a little home gym, and I go in there, and I start working out, and then I remember having a conversation with Dan, and if you don't know, Dan is like, the, he's like a CrossFit guru, and he's telling me all this stuff, like, about, like, this workout he did and his numbers, and I'm kind of like, it's burning in me. I'm like, I could do that. I could do that. So I go into my gym, and I start lifting, you know, and then I was like, immediately my desire shifted. No, I'm not going to be a triathlete. I'm going to train like I'm going to the CrossFit Games in 2023. All right? Yes, thank you. So what do I do? I get a training plan, right? I get some pre-workout. You guys ever have a Bang Energy drink? Alexis got me off that. She's like, that's terrible for you. And I was like, okay. So I went plant-based. I got the, the pre-workout. I got my branch chain amino acids. I got my protein. I'm ready to go. And literally, I'm training for like three weeks, and I'm feeling good, right? I'm getting the overheads. I'm getting the, you know, the, um, what's that bike called? Assault bike, thank you. 
So I'm, get, I'm getting it. Three weeks, I'm into it. And then, and then a Saturday comes, and I have some guys over to watch an MMA fight. You guys know where this is heading. So, yep, I'm going to be an MMA fighter. So what do I do? I go back to the boxing club, which is down the street from me, and I sign up. I steal my wife's wraps and her gloves, and I start my journey to become the ultimate fighter, right? And so I know a lot of you are sitting there like, I'll never work out with this guy, but yes. But all that to say is I, I like many of us, are a mixed bag of desires. We have good desires, we have bad desires, we have neutral desires. And I believe that all of our desires are complex, extremely complex. But my point in bringing this up really is to ask a question. As followers of Jesus, do our desires matter? Does it matter that we desire to have flourishing relationships? That we desire to have knowledge, right? We go to school. Do we, that we desire to live in this beautiful city here in San Diego, that we desire to have our, our homes designed with a bohemian, modern, baroque flair. I know, I made that up. I made that up. I don't know anything about interior decorating. Our desires to succeed in business, desires to create and innovate, we may, as these good Christians, <laughs> say to ourselves, although these desires are in me, I don't see how they contribute to the advancement of the gospel. So what we do is we tend to suppress our desires, and though we may suppress them, as we all know, those, de those desires don't go away. So there was this experiment that was made famous in 1987. You guys may have heard of it. It's called the Pink Elephant Experiment. And so what psychologists would do is they would tell their clients, hey, for the next 30 seconds, think about anything except for a pink elephant. And what do you think people thought about? The pink elephant. And so we, as a church in the West, we may have done that with, with some of our teaching in suppressing our desires. So we've taken our misaligned desires and we've suppressed them. However, in our suppression, they come rearing their ugly head more intensely and we are left with fear and anxiety because we are sitting in a silo with our desires unexpressed. And this is unsettling. It really is. So now we return to our question. Do our desires matter? Yes, our desires matter. Expressing our desires matters. But as Christians, we have been given a whole new set of desires at our core. So as we walk with Jesus, he's teaching us to live out live out of our deepest desires to love and obey him, which leads to fulfilling his purposes through us. So by the example of Paul in this letter to the Philippians, we will begin to understand this truth. Paul does not mix his words. We, got, we read that. He doesn't mix his words as to what his desire is. In fact, he's, he's intentional in expressing his desires to the church in Philippi. He is a man, he's literally chained in prison with an urgency to get this letter out to the specific church, yet he, he reflects deeply on his desires and pens it as he sends it out to his community in Philippi. So we, as we explore this passage today, we will see that this is true of those living a life devoted to Christ. We have desires, right? We can all agree with that. There's no denying that. We have desires, However, 
our desires, as we see through the example of Paul, should be expressed, but not necessarily our guide in life. So as we move through the text today, as we move through this passage, I want us to kind of frame it, in th- and we're going to break it into three parts. Paul has a desired outcome. He has an expected outcome and a unified outcome. Now let's, uh, let's dive into this a little bit deeper. I do want to note that there, these outcomes, the way that Paul moves through this specific passage is that they really are building on one another. So we don't just hear a point and then we move on from there. It is like it's the building block to what Paul uh, ultimately wants the church in Philippi and us to know at the, at the end of chapter one here. So first, desired outcome. So Paul in verses 21 through 24 expresses his ultimate desire to the church in Philippi. No mixing of words. <laughs> he plainly states, if he had to choose to keep on living or, de- or to die, he would choose death to be with Christ. Again, let's listen to his words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So remember that the original audience, we'll go to verse 21, we'll put that on there. Um, So remember the original audience received this message just like I'm talking today. It was a letter that was read to them. And this particular phrase for to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain was actually jarring for them. So why is Paul saying that death is gain? In fact, the verb here is kirdos. I probably said that. I don't know how I said that, if it was right or wrong. But that more accurately means to profit. So Paul would profit more to die than from living. Let's just sit with that for a second. But what is, what is he telling the Philippians in this particular phrase? To understand his intent, we must realize that Paul is a man of, and I'm going to explain this, of already, already happened, but not yet. He is reassuring the Philippians that their salvation is secured. Church, our salvation is secured. In fact, death is not something to fear, but it is something to look forward to. Let's reflect on this for a second. Our our culture and our society Things of aging and things of getting old and death is something that we want to prevent. But what Paul is saying in this letter is that, no, I actually, I desire to be one with Christ in death because I know what the outcome will be. So with this phrase, to live as Christ, he is emphasizing the already. I'm already living with Christ that he is constantly talking through, through all of his letters. The not yet peace comes after death when he is fully with Jesus. So if he lives, he will continue now as always, as he's always done, to be in Christ. To live as Christ is to to participate in his sufferings. And there's going to be more on this later. But this is kind of like Paul's maxim in life, is that we see more clearly defined in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So we'll put that up there. So Paul says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's important to know that although Paul is definitely stating his personal desires, he is laying out these two scenarios as an eschatological, 
outlook for the believers. So eschatology is this theology uh, concerned with death and the final destiny of the soul and humankind. So that's what, it's a big word, you probably hear it a lot, but basically it means to die and to be with Christ is the ultimate reward for Paul. There's no desire that he would put above that. But to live actually means that he will continue the work that has been started since his conversion from Damascus. And this is good for Paul. In fact, spreading the truth of Jesus Christ is his mission. And while living, he will do that. Then we see Paul uh, in a state of reflection regarding this kind of like dilemma of desire in verse 22. And he says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. You know, we had a, in our community group, we were reading through the text, and one of, our, um, one of the girls in our group was like, I actually love that Paul says, I don't know. Because there's times where I am going through life and I'm reading scripture, and I'm like, I don't know. I was like, that's great, yeah. I don't know either. But there is, to this specific uh, um, phrase, there's, it's a multifaceted meaning. So first and most, most importantly, we see, here, we see here, words, that Paul has yielded to God's plan. So the phrase, yet what shall I choose, I don't know, is actually Paul stating his desire in a hypothetical, right? He's not saying that he is the arbiter of like what the choice is going to be, but ultimately he doesn't have a choice if he will live or die. But if he did, if he did, he would without a doubt opt to God's desire for him. Second, Paul is persistent in expressing his longing to be with Christ. He is openly expressing his desires while simultaneously yielding to God. This is, this is kind of where maybe our culture and the way that we frame things would, would, would kind of part, is that, oh, I can express my desire. I can express, like, the things that I want to do, yet I am yielding to God's plan and ultimately submitted to him. And Paul doubled down, doubles down on this reflection in verse 23. He says, I am torn between the two. Again, right? It's kind of like a broken record. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Again, Paul is not mincing his words when it comes to his desires. We get this. He is also deeply, deeply conflicted. The phrase, I am torn, has heavy, heavy meaning behind it. There's like connotations with the word attack or distress or torment. I'm, he's tormented by this. So understanding these two phrases, Paul is on one hand saying he's really conflicted because he knows without any doubt in his mind, union, union with Christ supersedes anything. However, there's this fruitful labor piece that he talks about, and it's at the forefront of his mind. So we look to the next verse to see what he believes God has calling him into this conflict. So verse 24, but again, church in Philippi, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Though his greatest desire is to be unified with Christ, he deems it necessary to remain with them, to be with them. Again, Paul really has no control in this matter. Here, he ultimately yields to God's divine plan for his life and is absolutely convinced, as we will see in the coming verses, that he remains for the fruitful labor. So these first three verses inform us, really, that Paul is a man of one purpose. What is it? I'm just kidding. Christ and him alone. Paul is a man of one purpose. Christ and him 
alone. His hope is that the Philippians will take this as their maxim as well. So Gordon Fee, who this is kind of the guy that um, he's the uh, commentator. That he's, he wrote the commentary that we're kind of going through as a teaching team. Brilliant. Um, he reflects on these two phrases from, from Paul. And the first is uh, on to live as Christ. He says, too often for us, it is for, for me to live as Christ plus work, leisure, accumulating wealth, relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And if the truth were known, all too often the plus factor has become our primary passion. For me, to live is my work. But we need to know that both our progress and our joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. Read that part one more time. Both our progress and joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. I want to stop here for one second and just say, I know we may read this phrase, and we may say, Christ is not my one singular passion. And I don't know how, Paul, what he's describing is so foreign to me. And I just want to say that that's okay. We need to think about this in the scope of our life, that we're, we're incrementally drawing closer to Jesus and understanding his desires. And so it's okay if you, if you can't connect with this right now. We, we need to move towards that, and we're going to talk more about that. And to die is gain. So this is the second part. So we expect eventually to depart and be with Christ. For Paul, this was his yearning. For us, it is too often an addendum. It's like, oh, I live this life, and then at the end, yeah, I get to go be with Jesus. That would be cool. But the point to make, of course, is that such an orientation gives us both focus. When he says orientation to the orientation that Christ is my ultimate satisfaction, my ultimate desire, it gives us an orientation that gives us both focus and perspective in a world gone mad. Our desires do matter. But in this world corrupted by sin, our carnal desires will lead us astray. But Jesus is actually inviting us to take our corrupted desires, which we all have, and allow him to transform them to align with Jesus' desire as we make him our goal. We tend to take our misaligned and corrupted desires and we actually try to hide them from Jesus. <laughs> we think that he cannot handle them or he may judge us, so we just sit again in this silo with our desires unexpressed. But he can. In fact, he, he's the only one who can. He desires for you, for me, for all of us, to come with him with our desires, just like Paul expressed. So let's move to our second point. Expected outcome. So this is going to be verse 25 through 26. We'll go to the next slide. So Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy. Everyone say joy. Okay, let's try that again. Uh, everyone say joy. There we go. Joy. Uh, in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on the account of me. So note that the change in the form of this phrase, right? The previous section, 21 through 24, he speaks at length about his desire. 
In verse 25 and 26, this serves as a transition because what we're going to see in the, in the back half is that as he's going to move into like an exhortation type of um, messaging to the, to the Philippians. So I think it's important to remember that as we move into this next section of exhortation, desire to be with Christ should not be forgotten. Paul wanted us, wanted the Philippians, and we need to know that desire to be with Christ should not be forgotten. It seems to be like it's the prerequisite, right, for everything that we're about to talk about. Desire to be with Christ. So now with this conviction, he will remain with them. He will live as Christ. The phrase will remain is actually, it's a play on words uh, with two meanings. So for Paul, quite literally, that means I want to remain, I'm convinced that I will remain physically alive, <laughs> right? And also to remain amongst the Philippians. So he's reassuring, reassuring the Philippians that he expects to live and be with them. But let's not forget that this is a letter of friendship. The people who are listening to this letter were friends of Paul. They greatly care for him, and, they, and he greatly cares for them. So the idea of losing him, like any of us would with friends or family, would be devastating. But most importantly, his release and remaining with them is for their progress of the joy in the faith. This is, this is Paul's fourth mention of joy in Philippians. However, this is the first time it's not referencing his own joy. He is addressing your progress and joy. So this is, this is really a transition from addressing Paul's own affairs to the Philippians' affairs. So what Paul says next is more for the church in Philippi. Their progress and, their progress and joy and faith is his conviction. So we also have this phrase boasting in here. So we typically, as Americans, we associate boasting with pride and vanity. But for Paul, boasting was not about personal bragging rights, no, but boasting about the power of God. So the prophet Jeremiah illustrated this perfectly when he says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boast, boast about this. It's a lot of boasts that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. So for Paul, boasting in Christ is putting one's full trust and confidence in him. And this will be necessary for the Philippians in the coming opposition that they will face. So moving on to our third and final section of the passage, now we see Paul's desire for a unified outcome. He's expressed his desires. He's now moved on from his affairs to the Philippians' affairs. So now there's a unification that seems to be happening here. Let's read. Let's wrap up here. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Everyone say one spirit. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God for and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I have, and now here that I still have. Um, have you guys ever here, anyone in here ever bargained with a child? Or maybe even like an adult? Um, 
So, like, for, for an example, like, when my son really desires something, he, he gives me all the reasons without even taking a single breath. Like, the reasons that he wants something without taking a breath. So, we were at Target the other day, and I told him um, that he can get a $15 toy. That was, his, that was his limit, right? And my son, now he's in a place where he's, like, he can read, uh, he can read numbers, so he understands what that means. Um, and so, but he's, he's not really a bargainer. My son is very black and white. Like, he thinks of the world as, like, black and white. Actually, in fact, funny story, just real quick. We were in the, uh, uh, just to kind of paint, my son, his name is Titus, just to paint a picture of who he is. We were in our backyard the other day, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, Tatum, was like, um, she said, she was telling uh, my wife and I, I don't think Jesus is real because I can't see him. And I was like, oh, sweet, like this, uh, I get to do some apologetics on my, on my six-year-old. And so, and so I was like, um, okay, Tatum. And she just, she just learned about trees and oxygen, so I'm like, oh, this is perfect. So I was like, so babe, uh, what about oxygen? Can you see oxygen? And she was like, no. And I was like, I was like, yeah, but like you still breathe it in, right? And then Titus jumps in and he was like, he was like, yeah. He's like, it's just like Jesus. Like we can't see him maybe, but he's he's all around. He's everywhere. And I was like, whoa, Ty. I was like, good job, bud. Like that's really smart or whatever, right? I told him that. And then so five minutes pass, and we're talking about something as a family, and Titus goes. He was like, I know, I'm the smartest one in the family. And he's walking away like this, and me and Ashley are like, what is this? And he's walking around, and he goes, Dad, remember the Jesus thing? And I was like, oh. I was like, yeah. So that's, that's Titus in a nutshell. So we're sitting here in Target. Um, and again, he's not a bargainer. My oldest, she will bargain. She's, she's slick. Um, and... Uh, Oh, so he is, yeah, he's very practical. So, but when he knows that practicality, like, can't help him win, like, his argument, then he kind of shifts to, to, like, a different, uh, he, he's a very passionate kid as well. So he just switches to straight passion. So what he did is he says, he grabs a toy that's definitely above the $15 limit. If you guys have ever been to Target, you'll notice when you have kids, they put all, like, the $50 toys on the bottom and all the $1 toys on the top, right? So he grabs it and he goes, Dad, can I please have this toy? Two weeks ago, I picked up a piece of Tatum's trash, and she owes me money. I went to school on Friday, and I just love you. And it's like all of his reasons. I'm like, dude, his face is just red. And I'm like, Ty, that's like, he's just so passionate. And there was just this sense of urgency that came from him that he really wanted this toy uh, that was above the $15 limit. Now, <laughs> you're like, what? how are you going to tie this in? Without the dramatics, but in a similar form, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. So if you guys remember when Dan's teaching, when uh, I think it was through uh, verse 1 through 12, Paul is so excited to like write this letter to the uh, Philippians that it's just kind of like the one big run-on sentence, and he's just like, I just love you guys so much. Similar here. He, the urgency in which Paul is saying this, uh, this exhortation is just that. He wants to get it all out at once. So again, this is a church that he deeply cares for. For in the same way, he wants them to share in this deep desire that he's already clearly expressed to be with Jesus in death, but he wants them to deeply experience the joy of Jesus on earth urgently. So, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the phrase conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ actually presupposes 
that the gospel had known ethical content, right? There, was, there is an ethical kind of mandate to the gospel. So in order to live worthy of something, there is also a way to live not worthy of something. So this has huge implications for the church in Philippi and even for us today. To live worthy of the gospel is to stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. On the other hand, grumbling, selfish ambition, we're going to get into this in chapter 2, disputing and vain conceit are all markers of a community of disunity. So I think this is important for us to know as well as a community. We I think we could tend to, to put ourselves in this space where we say, yeah, like, we're here. We all love Jesus. We're all, like, in this together, right? High School Musical. But I think that there is the, the, there is the space where we could come in and there is some grumbling or there would be some selfish ambition or disputing. And we have to try really hard as a community in prayer and honest conversation to turn that around and to say, you know, I, I do want to selflessly serve you like Jesus served the church. So it's really important to note that Paul uses the term one spirit to reference unity in the Holy Spirit. We are a unified church in the Holy Spirit. So there's true unity formed as the Holy Spirit aligns our desires together as a community around Jesus's desires. Deep intimacy happens with a collective desire to be like Christ. We need we desperately need our community to fully move towards and, and embrace our desire to be like Jesus. We must fight against the cultural urge that says, I need to do this all by myself because that's not the way of Jesus. He then goes on to describe why unity is necessary for the advancement of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, that you'll be saved, and that by God. The sentence is central for Paul's appeal for unity in the face of opposition and the coming mention of suffering. So this, this church, Philippi, faced immense conflict and opposition. And like Paul, they were opposed due to their allegiance to Jesus as their Lord. So Paul urged them to unite under the Spirit of Christ, their Lord, to combat this conflict in fact, it was the only way. So I asked the question, why would the church not be frightened? Anybody? Because to die is gain. Like Martin Luther stated, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. In verse 29 for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. Well, this doesn't seem pleasant. <laughs> I mean, I was, right, we're all kind of, like, I was tracking with Paul when he mentioned, uh, until he actually mentioned the suffering part. So I like the expression of desires, right? We all kind of like that. I like the exhortation to be unified, right? This is great. Like, yes, let's unify. But I'm not sure about the suffering part. Well, why does Paul mention suffering here? Well, let's read in his words to the Romans so that we can understand what he, what he thinks about suffering. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings 
are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. If we are to be like Jesus, then we must suffer like Jesus. We understand this passage in the same way that Christ himself lived and died on behalf of this fallen, broken world. So if we join with him in life, then we join with him in suffering. In verse 30, we'll wrap this up. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I'm in prison. Paul's saying, I'm in prison. You're in prison. I'm suffering. Church in Philippi, you're suffering. And this seems to tie together why Paul spoke at length about his affairs to empathize with the Philippians. Okay, so what do we do with all this? How do we take these three movements that Paul's making in this section of Philippians and actually apply it to our everyday life? So we stand from sitting in these white chairs in Adam's elementary, we will move towards our desired intimacy with Christ. So first thing we do is we express and observe our desires to see if they, like Paul, are moving towards Christ. So maybe ask yourself, how do we know if we desire Christ? Maybe you're sitting in your seat and you have this firm grasp of the Bible and the overarching biblical narrative, but you actually don't desire Jesus. You're sitting with all this head knowledge and you're like, oh, I just don't feel it. The idea of Jesus sounds nice and coming to church and community group is a no-brainer for you, but you're not really in awe of him. Or maybe you're thinking, I've, I've actually been in church for so long and uh, I need to read my Bible more and grasp what's going on. And then I think at that point, after I have a good grip on the Bible, then I can start desiring him. For both, I'd ask the question, what do you currently desire above anything else? I don't want you to feel guilt or shame or to feel like you failed, but to take an honest assessment and allow the Holy Spirit to work in your desires. Like Paul, my prayer is that you will grow incrementally, that we will grow in our desire for Jesus. Why? Why even grow in our desire for Jesus? Why? Because like the writer of Ecclesiastes reflects on all of his possessions, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I think we might be able to connect with this. I refused my heart zero, no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was a reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. So in our current cultural context, triple C, this could translate to a simple phrase that we in the West love. Work hard, play hard, yes. Yet after the process is complete, we are still left with unmet desires. I'm convinced that if, we are des if our desired outcome is to live as Christ and to die as gain, we will find the joy that we are so, so desperate for. So the second question, second section of the passage puts the emphasis on the present. We ask ourselves this question. Okay, so I'm here. I'm not with Jesus, so what do I do? We remain and continue with the people sitting around you in these white chairs to progress in the joy and faith, to labor with one another through life's peaks and life's valleys. We have joy-filled conversations about life and how God is transforming us, we have extremely difficult conversations about 
maybe deconstructing and questions about faith and life's failures. We literally bring everything to the table and pursue Jesus' desires together. And we have a unique opportunity. We really do. As followers of Jesus, as missional people, we are literally walking through every aspect of life together. And on our final section on Paul's desire for a unified outcome may lead us to this question. Why do we do this? Why would we choose to live a life that is counter to our individualistic desires? I battle this. Why would we choose to embrace a community of Jesus followers and rely on them for everything? The answer is in Paul's words to the Philippians. To advance the gospel, to share the redemptive message of Jesus to all. When our collective desires drive us to a deep conviction of Jesus' work on the cross, we can do nothing but share it with others. And that's the, that's the urge today. That's the push today, is that we are a community that is safe, and we can express our desires, and we have expectations, and we can bring them, but ultimately, we are a church community, just like the church in Philippi, to bring the message of the gospel to a lost and broken world who so desperately needs it because we need it. And we understand that because we've been in that broken place. We, are, we see this. So before we actually come to communion, I want to share this quote from Augustine as he reflects on how Jesus actually saved him. I will love you, Master, and give thanks and testimony to your name. Since you pardon me, from such terrible wrongdoings, from such unspeakable things that were my work. To your grace, I give the credit, and to your mercy that you melted my sins like ice. There is joy in salvation. There is hope in salvation. So we express our desires, and we move. It's nuanced. We, we express our desires, and we, we, we move towards our desires in Christ, we talk about our, expecta- our, our, our expected outcomes, and we ultimately unify so that we can bring the message of hope and this joy that we have in Jesus to the broken people here in San Diego. Let's pray.